This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, author Maya Kornberg discusses her book, Inside Congressional Committees. She speaks about the functions of congressional committees and examines their strengths and weaknesses. She's interviewed by American Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow, Kevin Kosar. Welcome to Afterwards. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, I quite enjoyed your book, Inside Congressional Committees, and we're going to talk about it. But first, let's talk about you and the path that led you to writing this book. You trained as a political scientist. When in your life did you first take an interest in politics, public affairs, governance issues? And when in your life did that interest hit the point where you decided, I think I want to do this for a career? or a mm-hmm. profession? So I've always been interested in democratic institutions and how we can make them work better for the people that they're meant to serve. Um, I believe that anytime you have a group of people together making decisions about how to govern themselves and allocate resources, you have politics. And democratic institutions are really at the center of a healthy political system. And they're central then to how groups of people live and how they organize. And that is why I think that it's so central as a topic and have decided to devote my career to studying it. And I think that legislatures in particular um, are, are really central to the way in which societies come together and govern themselves. Um, the other thing that has been really central to, um, to, to my beliefs and my career path is the conviction that you need to be understanding something deeply in order to improve it. And so that is why I have really uh, been committed throughout my work and remain committed to marrying uh, scholarship and understanding of the way in which institutions work to concrete um, policy and advocacy to improve our institutions. Um, and I, I hope to continue to, to, to work on these themes. All right. Well, when you were studying to be a political scientist and uh, the graduate school process, I've been there, it's a long, it's a long pl- slog. Uh, it's a form of kind of trade training. When you were doing that, were there any particular professors or books that were particularly important in your own development as a scholar? Mm-hmm. So that's a great question because I've been influenced by many, many um, political scientists um, as well as scholars in uh, adjacent fields. Um, I, I would have to start by saying that, you know, of course, as a congressional scholar, um, the iconic works of Richard Fenno. Um, who uh, really in so so many ways shaped the field, um, shaped the way that I view studying Congress, uh, not just because of the substance of of, of his arguments, but also because of his approach. Um, I'm a big fan of his, uh, what he called the soak and poke approach, where he really immersed himself in Congress in order to understand it. And um, I, I, I believe that that remains a really important way to approach the study of Congress, but really any democratic institutions. Um, and then I would also have to say kind of more more recent scholarship by folks uh, like Francis Lee and, and Sarah Binder um, and others um, has shaped the way in which I view institutions. I think that their work um, really encourages us to, um, to, to, to take a systematic approach to institutions and to understand that they are malleable um, and that Congress and, and others, um, they, they of course study Congress, has, has changed um, and is shaped um, by uh, many, many dynamics and many people who have walked its halls. Um, and then of course, uh, my PhD supervisor, Desmond King, who's a scholar of racial politics, among other things, um, I think really inspired me um, in, in terms of the approach um, to, to take to research, um, inspired me to question um, existing approaches in the, in, in the field and to be um, 
critically minded um, and, um, and and really form um, in, independent um, approaches and and um, thought processes towards things. Um, so um, those are just a few. Of course, um, I'm. Um, I'm influenced by so many others, uh, and I would also say that I, um, I, and this is ingrained into my book as well, as well as some of my other work, um, political philosophers, um, uh, particularly political philosophers who focus on deliberative democracy, um, but also other fields, um, have really shaped uh, the way in which I approach the work, um, even though I myself am not a political theorist, um, political theory is very close uh, to to my heart and to the way that I uh, approach things. Um, folks like, um, of course, um, I- I- iconic philosophers like Hannah Arendt, um, also uh, ha- Jürgen Habermas, um, Iris Marion Young, um, and their scholarship has really inspired uh, my approach to studying Congress, uh, but also so many other things in the field. Oh, yes. I can fully appreciate the uh, value of political theory in trying to understand a phenomenon as complex as Congress, to say nothing of the broader sphere of politics. Uh, Political theory is very much a, a look at ideas, conceptions, ways of thinking about things. And each actor who's out there in the political world has their own ideas and their own concepts of what they're supposed to be doing uh, and what they're up to. Now let's turn to the book. Uh, Inside Congressional Committees, Function and Dysfunction in the Legislative Process, which was published by Columbia University Press. Writing books, as you no doubt experienced, is not easy. Um, And to complete this book, you did a ton of work, as evidenced by the analyses in there, uh, the works cited, the bibliography, uh, the notes, etc., etc. How long did it take you to complete this book? And what motivated you to pull through and get it over the finish line? Yeah, so as, as you said, it's a, uh, it's a very laborious process. And so I think that it has to be a labor of love, um, as, uh, as cheesy as that might sound. Um, I, I, I think that you have to really genuinely enjoy the process itself. Um, and I genuinely enjoyed learning about Congress and the way it works. I was also really inspired by the people that I interviewed um, who are in Congress, uh, getting a chance to interview staffers and members and other folks who are involved in the process really inspired me and I enjoy just learning from them about what they do. Um, But, you know, it's not all romantic. Um, I also think that the, um, uh, the, the process requires, uh, as, as you said, a lot of conviction um, and, and a lot of hard work. Um, I had the pandemic lockdown um, to take away some um, perhaps other distractions um, and give me some time to write a lot of it. Um, but of course, uh, it also takes um, a lot of writing and rewriting and uh, a lot of encouragement and support from others, which I was lucky to have, uh, from um, mentors and fellow scholars and uh, friends who were really instrumental in not just encouraging uh, me to continue, but also in giving early feedback um, and in greatly strengthening the book as it took shape. And was this a book that grew out of your thesis or dissertation that you produced in the course of advancing to get your your doctorate? It was, yeah. It's uh, direct um, outgrowth, I would say, uh, of of my PhD. Um, But that being said, um, and I perhaps... I didn't realize how, how, how much more work this would be when I embarked on it. Um, it, it really um, took, took on a shape and a life of its own. Um, I collected a lot of new data and, um, and, and, and told, I think, a, a much more nuanced story um, with that new data um, and new thinking and new writing than I was able to do in the PhD. But of course, the, the PhD work uh, formed um, a very solid um, and core basis for, for the book, and then the book uh, grew, grew out of that. 
Yeah, a dissertation uh, and a book differ not least in the fact that a dissertation has a primary audience, the committee that's looking to approve it. A book seeks a larger audience, and certainly I hope this book does get a larger audience because there's a lot in it. Now, you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, but I want to dig a little more deeply about the methods you used to do this book. Um, Some political scientists love to just crunch numbers and their books are just really thick with math. You've got some of that in there, but you have a whole lot of other methods rolled into there, which perhaps were inspired a bit by Fenno and, and other giants in the field of political science. What prompted you to take this multiple methodological approach? Did you try to work one methodology and find that you just weren't getting at the truth, or from the outset did you decide you were just going to use multiple ways of looking at things? How, how did that come to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I, as you said, I was definitely inspired by existing work on Congress and the way in which um, work by Fenno and others has really illuminated different parts of this process. I'm a fan of the richness of multi-methods approach, approaches because I think that in handling something as complex as, say, the legislative process in Congress, but of course uh, many other questions that political scientists try to answer are equally complex. Um, There are many, many different layers, and one approach might be good at getting at the truth uh, for one of those layers, uh, but perhaps not another one. And so uh, melding together Uh, different approaches that might be better suited to different parts of the process is really important. For example, um, in in the book, as you say, I use different approaches to get at different questions um, and and sub-questions. So one of the things that I look at is how committee hearings are put together today. Uh, What is the process and the nitty-gritty of setting up a hearing? And that is something that really um, can numbers can't get at counting votes, counting, um, you know, words um, is, is, is not going to be the way to, um, to answer that question. Um, detailed and extensive interviews with uh, staffers in uh, various positions um, and members in various positions who are involved in that process is really going to be the best way to answer that question. On the other hand, um, I looked at um, the actual words that are used by witnesses who testify before committees, and I wanted to get a broad sense of that. And so I used um, a kind of a large data set of thousands of transcripts and, um, and, and, and counted incidents of certain words, and that gives you kind of a, a, a broader way of looking at something um, that is not uh, just uh, speaking, to, um, speaking to people and... Um, and, and, and looking at things in a, in a qualitative way. And so that allowed me to get at another part of the question. And, of course, there are other methods that I use. And so together, I think that it can help tell a more comprehensive story about what's going on. All right, let's dig into what's going on. Let's dig into committees, uh, since they're the subject of the book. Now, Congress has had committees basically since 1789, uh, when Congress was a much smaller operation. Committees have always been with Congress. The House has always had them. The Senate's always had them. Why? So as you mentioned, committees have really been essential institutions in Congress since its inception. And the way that I like to think about it is that Committees exist because Congress is a huge institution, and it has to deal with a huge number of issues, as we all know from watching it. And so it needs to delegate responsibility and ownership um, in some way, and and it does this through committees. Committees are really where it delegates responsibility to look more deeply and take ownership of different issues. Committees are where members can specialize in a topic and take ownership of it and, and, and deliberate and understand policies more deeply. Committees are also a way then of decentralizing power within the chamber and allowing more legislators to be involved in different ways uh, in, in the process. Again, just like many other uh, big organizations that we might think of. Uh, and, and in terms of how committees actually function in the process, um, Congress, uh, in, a, in, in what we 
I think um, many of us know as regular order situations, um, a bill is introduced in the chamber, it is then referred to the committees, and then the committees do the actual work of uh, having hearings with witnesses and amending and marking up the bill, and then they will send it back to the floor for a final vote. But traditionally, committees are where a lot of that um, in-depth policy formulation work um, is designed uh, at least to happen in Congress. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, uh, based on what you're saying, it's it's a bit like any other organization. Mm-hmm. You can't have everybody working on the same task at the same time, especially if you're talking about dozens of people or, as in the House these days, 435 members and 100 in the Senate. So you kind of engage in a division of labor. And that allows the organization to not only develop specialization, as you says, but also, as you indicate, to work on multiple things at the same time and not just get anchored on one topic. So these committees, um, where do they come from? How are they created? Mm -hmm. So committees have uh, changed over the course of Congress's history, uh, but the committees that we have today are written into the official rules of the House and the Senate. Um, and their, uh, the, the committees and their jurisdictions have not changed since the 1970s, which was the last time that there was a, a structural reform um, in the way that um, standing committees are divided and in their jurisdictions. That being said, um, there are uh, many what we call select committees that might crop up at certain times that Congress needs to deal with a specific issue um, of the day, an an investigation or a pressing issue. Um, And so it will create what's called a select committee, uh, which is more ad hoc and less um, permanent than than what we know of as the standing committees. One example of a select committee that, of course, everyone is very aware of is the January 6th committee. But of course, there are many others that uh, Congress can create uh, through a resolution and that can help it dig into issues of the day. Right. And the committees themselves often spawn subcommittees and they do that on their own authority typically. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, So subcommittees um, is a much less um, regimented uh, process um, and uh, much more variable between committees and over time, as you said, uh, they can kind of spawn from uh, from the committees themselves. Um, and also, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll talk about this later in terms of how committees actually function, there's a lot of variation in the way in which the subcommittee and the full committee interact with each other um, in terms of, of, of how they decide things, how they work, how they hold hearings. Um, so there's a lot more variation in that versus the um, the, the regimented approach that I just mentioned with standing committees. All right. Well, yeah, as you, you noted, there are a variety of types of committees. There's the appropriations committees who, uh, you know, make decisions about spending. Uh, there's select committees like the January 6th-focused uh, one. There are also joint committees where the House and the Senate have legisl- both legislators will be sitting together and making decisions together. Your book focuses on authorizing committees. Why? And while you're at it, could you explain for viewers, what do the authorizing committees do? Mm-hmm. So that's a great question. Authorized committee, authorizing committees do what um, it sounds like they do. They authorize legislation related to agencies. And so they can decide um, where and what money can be spent. But appropriations uh, bills are really what decides how much is going to be spent. And as you said, then, that uh, changes the nature, then, of the kinds of hearings and the kinds of work that appropriations committees will do versus authorizing committees. And so in wanting to understand the kind of substantive and policy formulation discussions that are happening in Congress, um, that, that is why I focused on authorizing committees um, as, um, as, as the focus of this book in understanding kind of where legislation is authorized, how these policy debates happen, and who Congress listens to and, and, um, and, and how they listen to them in, in having these policy formulation debates. Well, if I could just follow up on that. So you were looking at the authorizing, at authorizing committees, and these are the committees that 
they're they're writing law. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are deciding policy. You looked at a bunch of them, but just for the viewers' sake who haven't yet read the book, which committees did you look at in, in each chamber? Can you name a few of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I looked at uh, a few different committees in each chamber um, and committees that varied in terms of their policy um, expertise and, and, and jurisdiction um, and in terms of the relative degree of partisanship of the committee, and that's something that um, that I can touch a little bit more on, but uh, committees vary um, in how partisan they are based on their history and their culture and their topic, um, and uh, varied in terms of the desirability of the committee. So some committees are what's called A-list committees. They're the committees that everyone wants to be on and will engage in differently um, than committees that are less desirable. So for example, in the House, I looked at the House Ways and Means uh, Committee, uh, and that is an A-list committee. Um, I looked at the House Science Committee, which is perhaps a less desirable uh, committee, but uh, but one that has a very specific subject matter expertise that um, that I wanted to to, to dig into. Um, in the Senate, I looked at committees like uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which is known as a more bipartisan committee, um, but also uh, the. Um, uh, the Senate Commerce Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, um, really a few different committees in each chamber, um, which allowed for an exploration of different kinds of hearings um, and, uh, and and also different kinds of topic areas, um, relative levels of partisanship, relative levels of desirability. And I just named a few, but there's there's other committees that I look at in the book and to get a sense of kind of the, the scope and the, the breadth of different conversations that can happen. Yeah, you referenced... Uh a-list committees, the idea, you know, there's some committees that are considered better than others. Mm-hmm. What, what makes one committee more desirable to be on than some other committee? They're all making laws, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a number of different issues that can affect what committees uh, um, members are wanting to be on. Um, but uh, I would say that one of the key factors is the relative power of those committees um, to be um, to be involved in the process. So committees like the House Natural Resources Committee or the House Ways and Means Committee um, have much broader jurisdictions in making decisions over bills that get passed um, than committees um, like the, for example, House Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, which deals with no doubt a very crucial issue, um, but um, but less crucial in terms of actually deciding um, a lot of where the, the money gets spent um, and kind of the, the, the key pressing policy issues of the day. Um, and I would also say that the... Um, Kind of the the, the overall culture um, of of committees, the the ways in which different members have been involved historically, um, and um, and and the way in which these committees have kind of cropped up and taken ownership over issues has also influenced. Then, for example, a new member coming in and wanting to be on or um, lobbying to be on one committee versus another. Right, right. Some issue areas have broader broader breadth of power, if I heard you correctly. Mm-hmm. And my understanding also is that um, some committees, by virtue of their subject area, are um, more useful uh, or more empowering to a legislator who wants to fundraise for re-election. So yes, if you're overseeing the banking industry, the banking industry is a very lucrative industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point, um, which is also really important to raise. Uh, as, as we all know, money is deeply embedded into the political process, and committees are uh, definitely in- included in that. And so being on a certain committee can help, um, can help fundraise. And also um, the way in which, and there's been some research on this, not by me, but by other scholars, um, the way in which you have fundraised for the party in the past also can help you get on a certain committee when you're trying to make the case to party leadership, for example, that you need to be on a committee. So it's deeply embedded in that process. All right. Well, I wanted to ask, uh, one of the things that you note in your book is that the power of committees within their respective chambers has risen and fallen. Uh, And that's to be expected, as you noted earlier, institutions change. But why or how does a committee's power 
vis-a-vis the rest of the chamber grow or diminish? What do we mean by power in this context? Yeah, so that's that's a really excellent question and, of course, core to uh, the study of committees as institutions within the legislature. The way that I like to think of power uh, is, first and foremost, is autonomy. Do committees have the power to be deciding their own agendas um, and the committee leaders uh, deciding those agendas and the members um, versus the party and the party speaker and party leadership um, deciding that agenda for them. And what we've seen over the past several decades is that committees have increasingly less autonomy as a result of a number of different reforms that have happened over the past several decades. And power has become much more concentrated in the speaker um, and also in in, in lobbyists and, of course, other stakeholders, but within the chamber, um, within the speaker and the party leadership, um, and less so in the committees. And we see this um, also in the way in which committees have been involved in the process. So earlier on, I spoke about regular order, uh, and that is traditionally the way in which Congress is meant to legislate. A bill is introduced, and then it is referred to the committees. Um, But increasingly, we see committees uh, circumvented by the speaker. Bills are pushed through with very limited time for committees to hold hearings and dig into an issue before the bills are pushed through to a vote, um, which really strips them of their legislative power. Uh, And I might also highlight in terms of their autonomy that they used to have a lot more staff uh, that allowed them to really form the kind of expertise that is necessary in order for the members of that committee to specialize and learn and understand the different angles of an issue in the way that I explained earlier, committees are meant to help them do. So Congress has several thousand fewer staffers now than it did a few decades ago. Um, And it also relies on a smaller subset of support agencies. It used to have agencies like the Office of Technology and Assessment that also helped it understand issues. And so when, uh, when Congress and its committees do not have that power, it also makes it easier for uh, for the, the the speaker and the party leaders and and lobbyists to um, to be controlling the process and leaves less space for committees and their members um, to be really pushing and um, and deepening the the policymaking conversation. That's true. That's true. It was one of the startling finds when I first started studying congressional capacity is that the number of staff in each chamber is down significantly, particularly in the House since the 1980s. Uh, and then you have these legislative branch support agencies, like Government Accountability Office, uh, Congressional Research Service, CBO, and as you referenced, the uh, no longer existing Office of Technology Assessment. The cohorts of almost all those agencies have also gone down. Yet, of course, the size of government and the complexity of government has grown. So you've got this delta forming between the uh, number of people uh, who can study up and be expert and understand government and perhaps direct it uh, going down and the size of government going up. Now, that brings us to a central thing that committees do, which is conduct hearings. What are the purpose, purposes, plural, of hearings? Mm-hmm. So... There is many different purposes of a hearing. Um, The chair of a committee is the person who gets to set the agenda in terms of what hearings um, really happen. And there's a number of reasons why a chair might want to hold a hearing. Um, Perhaps they want to just, as a committee, gain insight and start gathering information about an emerging emerging policy issue. Um, Perhaps they want to build up public support for an issue. And this is kind of the more theatrical side of hearings, um, that it's about a, uh, these are public forums. They are, um, um, they are frequently uh, watched by, uh, by many people. And so it's a way to mobilize public support for an issue or opposition to an issue. Um, By the same token, it's also a way to mobilize support or opposition to an issue within the chamber and gain visibility for that issue. Um, There are oversight hearings that are meant as a check on the executive branch, uh, and there are also hearings that are meant to allow stakeholders um, in a specific policy area to come in and, um, and, and really make their 
views on an issue known and illuminate the different vantage points that there are on a policy issue in general. Um, and of course, as I mentioned, the chair is hugely important in setting the tone for which kinds of hearings happen. And so for that reason, um, the chair might have specific issues in his or her own district um, and um, other parochial interests that might also decide what hearings that committee uh, is, is going to hold. One of the staffers who I interviewed in the book um, uh, I, I think framed it nicely. Uh, he said that hearings can be proactive or reactive. So hearings can be meant to um, be getting ahead of an issue and understanding, as I mentioned um, at the outset, kind of gaining some initial insight or understanding of an issue, or they can be reactive. Um, they can be reacting to something on the ground and, and wanting to engage with it um, in, a, in, in, in a certain way um, either to gain publicity for it um, or to make a statement known um, or to react to it in a certain way. Um, for example, you know, say that the, um, the American embassy in a specific country has been attacked. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee might want to have a hearing to understand and, and react to that issue. Um, on the other hand, um, a, a story that I tell in the book is about the, um, the science committee's uh, genetic engineering hearing in 2015, once that was a new technology, they wanted to understand a little bit what that technology means and just gain some initial insight. So there's also that kind of temporal part of hearings where they can be either reacting to an issue or almost preempting an issue and, um, and, and, and trying to understand how it might develop. Yeah, and one thing that um, you know, anyone who reads your book is going to come away and appreciate is the extent to which participating in the committee process is a vehicle for learning for legislators. Uh, I think we tend to forget the fact that representative democracy is an exercise in amateurism. You know, you don't have to be a policy wonk to get elected to Congress. And even if you are, when you come to D.C., you're going to be assigned issues that are outside your wheelhouse, things you've never thought deeply about. Uh, and you're going to be expected to become expert in them. Uh, one of the legislators you quoted uh, said that being in Congress was a bit like going back to college because there was so much learning involved. And another anecdote that was in, in the, your book, one of the interviews you did with somebody in Congress, um, showed a member who was involved in a hearing um, about veterans' family and how they were reliant upon the SNAP program, the food benefit formerly known as food stamps. And I think that's just such a rich anecdote about this learning process. I wonder if you could share that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was a hearing in the Agriculture Committee, which was one of the committees that I looked at in the House. Um, and, it, um, and, and it really brought in different folks to talk about the many, many different issues uh, that are involved in SNAP, um, the, um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program of the government known as food stamps. And, um, and, and one of the legislators that I spoke to um, recounted specifically a hearing that talked about veterans who, who rely on food assistance and the story of a specific veteran um, who had given so much um, to, to the country, um, relying on food stamps, really, uh, I, I think for him, um, underscoring the importance of that program. And this is a program that uh, the 2018 Farm Bill and, and, of course, the Farm Bills preceding it um, get to shape in terms of how much money and, and the way in which that program will look. And so ahead of voting on that bill and deciding what that bill would look like, the story of that veteran and the way in which that hearing um, illuminated that part of the issue for him um, really made him think about food assistance in a different way. And this was something, so this was a, a legislator who had um, not been supportive of the program before. Um, and so really hu humanizing um, and also adding um, an, another perspective to the issue for him that he had not perhaps, um, uh, perhaps not, not even not, seen, but also um, not kind of appreciated and taken in in that way, um, allowed him to, um, to, to shape 
um, and, and, and reshape how he, how he viewed the Farm Bill and how he viewed the, um, the food assistance program in general. Yeah, and I think it was also really a remarkable example of how the voice of an average an American can be heard in Washington, D.C. place to do it very often is committees. Mm-hmm. Now, this brings us to the issue of who gets to be a witness. Uh, certainly, your book shows that very often witnesses at hearings are experts. But they're not the only types of folks who get to come in. Who else gets to come in and testify? Mm-hmm. So in the book, I talk about different types of witnesses uh, that, that might come to testify. So first of all, there's, um, there's also different kinds of experts. There's what I call in the book um, a labeled expert, someone who by virtue of their partisan affiliations and previous statements on an issue, everyone really knows what they're going to say on this. Perhaps it's a prominent uh, a skeptic of climate change who has come to testify many times and is um, and, and is associated with the Republican Party, um, and they are coming in yet again to um, to say the same thing that they've said before on climate change. Um, so that's going to color obviously the way in which the committee hears them. There's also something that I call an unlabeled expert, someone who is coming in and um, they have not been associated publicly um, with an issue. Uh, they have not. Um, been running running a blog um, talking about an issue. They have not been a former of a, a former member of an administration, and, um, and and so there's some freshness and some openness um, to hearing them that you don't see with with labeled experts. But of course, as you said, there's not just experts coming to testify. Um, hearings, as you um, as, as you put very well just now, are really a platform also to hear a spectrum of of voices of average. Americans who can come in and share how an issue might affect them based on their lived experience. And, of course, um, expertise in an issue does not just mean technical expertise. Um, Expertise also means... um, lived experience and understanding of an issue that, um, that affects you. So there's folks who, uh, who I call in the book uh, personal storytellers um, who are sharing from their personal experience. Um, people like, uh, we were talking about food stamps, so a WNBA star who grew up on food stamps coming to share her story, her experience of that issue, um, or a journalist um, who lived um, and, and, um, and, and reported alongside um, ISIS coming to share his personal story um, of, of the conflict in, in the region. So those witnesses are also an important part of the process. And interestingly, I ended every interview by asking members, can you tell me a story of a witness who, um, who stuck with you, any story in your years in Congress? And almost every single one told a story of a person of what I would call a personal storyteller, um, someone who came and um, and told their experience of an issue, and that is what really sticks with members. And I think that really underlines the importance of those kinds of witnesses. Um, of course, there are also a fourth type of witness, uh, which I call in the book a spokesperson for an issue. Um, and these are people, I mean, we can think about them as, um, and again, we the the, the food stamp hearing is just uh, fresh in my mind because because we've been talking about it. So uh, in, in that hearing and in the course of the, the conversations about the farm bill, um, you had uh, folks coming to testify who were advocates um, or worked in um, hunger relief um, uh, agencies and um, and programs um, to come and speak about um, about their vantage point and about the um, communities and the um, the, the vantage point of the issue that they represent in their everyday work and that they advocate for as a, as a, as a spokesperson for that cause. So there is really a richness of different kinds of witnesses that can come to testify. And um, as I've been explaining, they each bring a different layer to an issue. And of course, in making complex policy decisions all of those different layers and all of those different vantage points are really important to really um, deliberating about a specific policy. All right. Well, hearings, they don't throw themselves. They don't occur naturally. 
they rely heavily upon congressional staff. Can you talk a little bit about what staff do to make hearings happen? Mm-hmm. So staff are really uh, highlighted in the book and showcased as the backbone of the process. Staff do, um, I, I would say, uh, it's not overstating it to say that they do almost everything. Um, the chair might decide, as I mentioned, on an agenda for a hearing, um, depending on their relationship with the staff. Obviously, the staff might have more or less um, power in deciding themselves um, what hearings to hold. Um, and then the staff will really decide what witnesses come to testify, again, in consultation with the chair and the ranking member. Um, they'll decide uh, the how to brief members of the committee before, um, and they'll decide how they're interacting as a majority and a minority staff. And one of the things I highlight in the book is that staff relationships and really the informal norms of committees are hugely important in deciding um, what kinds of witnesses can come to testify and how the committee as a whole approaches a certain issue. Uh, And so it's the staff networks and expertise that decides which witnesses come to testify, and it's the staff relationships um, that um, that decide how they're interacting with the kind of the minority and the majority staff in making those decisions. And lastly, I would highlight that that my book talks about um, how lobbyists are involved in this process. And so it's staff expertise, it, um, it, at least in part, that um, that also is instrumental in um, and either forming uh, kind of the, the the soft underbelly that exposes um, exposes the process to, to infiltration by by lobbyists, or in um, in, in bolstering uh, the committee process against this. So staff who are kind of more expert on an issue uh, might be less easily manipulated by lobbyists who are trying to come in and suggest witnesses and give information ahead of a hearing and all of the things that, of course, it makes sense for lobbyists to do. Um, So staff, their relationships, their identity, their networks are really, really critical to deciding really everything about how a hearing ends up happening and how the members are going to be informed ahead of that hearing and who is going to speak at that hearing. Yeah, that gets at a, at a theme that's kind of recurrent throughout the book, which is it goes back to the old saying of knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have members who are brand new to the chamber, you know, lots of rapid turnover um, thanks to elections, and if you have staff who are brand new to their jobs, you know, in terms of being able to understand policy, to understand what the executive branch is up to or what, you know, the pharmaceutical industry or some other aspect of society is doing and whether it's good, bad, or worth looking into, they're not well prepared to do that. Uh, And so having expertise embedded in the legislative branch is an important thing because, as you highlight, uh, some of the smartest people in this town are lobbyists. These are professionals who know an awful lot, and their job is to use that knowledge and exert it as power. Mm-hmm. Now, committee staffs and relationships, who chairs the committee, who's the minority leader of a committee, you know, as I read your book, it really emphasized to me that ultimately this is a bunch of people getting together and having to figure out how much do they want to collaborate and how much do they want to coordinate? What should we focus on? Well, that's up for grabs. Mm -hmm. What should we work on first? That's indeterminate too. That has to be hashed out. And of course, different people are going to want to have larger or smaller voices in the project process of deciding that. And, you know, people's noses get out of joint if they don't feel like they've been consulted. When you looked at committees, did you see collaboration happening a lot? Did you see coordination that was doing good things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as you're saying, um, there is a huge amount of variation um, in how and how much collaboration is happening. 
So on the on the staff level, which we were just talking about, there's official rules that might entitle the minority to one witness in a hearing that entitle the minority party to a specific um, amount of notice before the hearing. But frequently, when there's good relationships um, and long-standing relationships between the minority and the majority staff, who, by the way, might switch, you know, um, as parties. Um, um, lose and retake control of the chamber, um, the same staffers might be in the majority once then in the minority. So if they have good relationships, then then the majority might give them more notice um, and more say in who is coming to testify in the hearing. In some cases, when there's good um, relationships and particularly on less fraught topics, um, there might even be a, a, a collaborative uh, committee approach to deciding the whole panel of witnesses together um, versus having um, you know, an X amount of uh, majority witnesses and then one minority witness. Um, so that's on the staff level. Um, but another thing that I talk about in the book is the relationship between the chair and the ranking member really in setting the tone and, and, and the culture of a committee. And so on committees that have um, a kind of historically um, and institutionally kind of embedded bipartisan culture, um, there might also be a, a, a more communal approach to issues um, that are um, that are charted by the, the the chair and the ranking member together um, and their respective staffs, um, and more of an emphasis on hearings that um, that that really are a kind of collaborative approach to an issue um, and that, as I talk about in the book, are more likely to result in witness panels that have a balance of different perspectives um, and really set the tone for a more kind of deliberative um, learning process. The other thing that I talk about uh, in the book in terms of the capacity for committees to encourage collaboration is that they are really one of the only bipartisan institutions in Congress where members from both parties have to come together on a regular basis and sit in hearings, um, engage in committee work, um, and, and learn about different things. Um, and so joint membership in a committee and the experiences and the shared goals that come from that um, are important um, in fostering some of the relationships that are lacking in Congress, especially um, since many members do not uh, live in Congress anymore, uh, which they once used to, and especially given what, of course, we all know is a, a hyper-partisan um, and, and truly rancorous uh, environment. So in, in the context of that, um, committees can, under some conditions, form a space to, to build relationships. One of the stories that I tell in the book about this is the friendship between uh, Senator Dick Luger, who I interviewed before he passed away in 2019, and um, then-Senator Barack Obama. Um, and Senator Luger really underscored that it was their joint membership in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which Senator Luger chaired and Barack Obama was then a member of, and um, their participation in what's called CODELs, or congressional delegation trips, trips that committees take frequently to um, to understand an issue and to, to gain information. They might go abroad, um, as is the case in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, and really form some of these experiences that are central to building some of the basic relationships that we, um, that we see are so lacking in Congress today. Well, all right. Uh, one thing that was interesting in the book was that, you know, committees can behave a little bit differently depending upon the issue. Mm-hmm. You know, some issues are highly polarized, highly charged, and they have, you know, value for legislators who are trying to seek re-election. You know, those are the sorts of hearings that often devolve into kind of red shirt versus blue shirt, you know, shouting competitions where members are up there on the dais trying to have their say. Um, But we'd be mistaken if we were to think those were the only types of hearings because many issues are just not polarized and lend themselves very easily to just bipartisan conversations. And speaking of these bipartisan conversations, your book shows that members don't always get together in formal committee hearings. They sometimes have these informal gatherings. These are the ones that we don't see on television, typically. Uh, We don't get much reporting on them because media often are not allowed to uh, be in there. 
Could you tell us a little bit about those and their value? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as you said, uh, we're all too familiar with the kinds of hearings that we see on TV um, with this uh, grandiosity and theatricality um, that, that is involved um, and the... Um, and the partisan politics that that might encourage. Um, But there are also hearings um, where less cameras are present and and committees come together in different settings. um, And when cameras are not present, of course, that that takes away the kind of fight for sound bites that you were mentioning um, and and, and kind of public displays um, that, of course... Um, we we all know from television, um, and since we've been talking about the agriculture committee and the farm bill, I'll just um, I'll just continue with that because again it's fresh in my mind. Um, so I tell the story in the book of the farm bill listening tour, um, which was a really unique thing that the agriculture committee did ahead of the farm bill passing. They went across the country and they held um, what uh, I think can be described as, as open mic sessions almost, where farmers and everyday Americans got to come up and take the mic and tell their story. And so that was a very, very different setting for a number of reasons from the traditional hearings that we just described. Um, and first of all, uh, it was a, a different kind of interaction with the witnesses. You don't have witnesses who are coming in and um, speaking off of a, a, a script um, largely reflective of the written testimony that they will have um, said before um, and uh, really constricted to kind of five minutes of speaking um, and members who are then sitting in assigned seats um, and cameras that are there at the ready. Um, you have much more of an open give and take with witnesses and, um, and, and really the opportunity for a conversation um, with everyday Americans. And then the other thing that you have is an opportunity uh, for members to interact with each other um, in, in, in a different way. Uh, the Farm Bill Listening Tour literally took them out of Washington, as field hearings um, like that often do, um, and took them out of the, um, the, the, the setting and the drama of, of the hearing rooms and allowed for a different kind of and a much more collegial kind of interaction. Um, and, uh, and other briefings that even happen in Congress that I talk about in the book, um, but where, again, the cameras are not there and you're not in this scripted setting, um, also allow for a much more open give and take, not just with the witnesses, but between the members themselves um, in a way that um, that the traditional hearings, uh, which we think of when we think of hearings, um, do not always make space for. Right, right. Yes, I recall the book recounting that, you know, frequently committees will just get together and they'll order in food and staff and members will sit together and just chew the fat over various topics uh, without having to worry about being quoted by a member of the media or without having to worry about sounding foolish if they ask a question uh, that has an obvious answer or something like that. Now, in the time we have left, I want to um, ask you, the subtitle of your book Function and dysfunction in the legislative process. Let's talk about function and dysfunction a little bit. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by function and what do you mean by dysfunction? Mm -hmm. So there are ways in which the legislative scholarship internationally tells us that committees are meant to act uh, purposes that they're meant to fulfill in legislatures uh, because committees are really a ubiquitous institution. They exist in many legislatures around the world. And so committees that are functioning are committees that are fulfilling these purposes. Um, As I mentioned, one of the things that committees are meant to do is to be a space to learn and to uh, engage with, um, with, with, with research on an issue and engage with, um, with all of the information that you would need to gather in order to understand a policy area. Committees are also traditionally meant as a deliberative space, a space to um, reason through and understand the, the different angles of an issue and, and, and to really debate and discuss and deliberate um, the different parts of a policymaking process. Um, and committees are 
um, also kind of beyond um, this space that they have in, um, in, in, in being a core kind of legislative institution that is meant to help, again, understand an issue and, um, and, and write laws, um, also, of course, meant to, um, uh, meant to oversee the executive, help the legislature oversee the executive in many uh, parliaments and have oversight hearings um, and help kind of um, rein in the power of the executive. So they have this kind of legislative purpose um, of understanding policy issues and of, of helping move forward and write bills. Um, and then they also have an oversight purpose um, where they are um, an instrument of the legislature um, to be holding hearings um, and engaging in other work that, that will help it oversee the executive and check executive power. So the reading of your book is going to come away, I think, with the impression that there are good things happening within committees. It is not just partisan theater, but there's learning, there's policymaking, there's oversight. What can committees do better? Mm-hmm. Right. So um, at, at, as you mentioned, there is definitely, uh, when you unpack the, the process and look under the 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 legislative hood, um, as it were, there's some of the mechanics are still working. But of course, there's a lot, as we know um, all too well, that still needs to be improved. So one of the things that I talk about in the book and that we've mentioned um, throughout this conversation is really the centrality of the staff. Committees do not have enough staff, and Congress does not have the staff that it needs to do its job. Um, It has not just, as we mentioned earlier in the conversation, uh, fewer staff than it had. It also has uh, fewer staff relative to the executive that it is trying to rein in and that it needs to have um, its own independent sources of information and ability to stand up against in a strong democratic system. And so it really needs um, staff. It also needs staff with the necessary expertise, as we were mentioning, who have the training to understand things. And it needs staff that are representative of, um, of the country, uh, we have a Congress that relies on staff that are still overwhelmingly white um, and uh, many from affluent backgrounds as a result of the hiring pipeline that starts with unpaid internships. And so really investing in staff and investing in the staff that are necessary is really, really important, and I highlight that in the book. The other thing that committees need to be doing is to be rethinking the way in which hearings happen. So I talked about a little bit uh, the the difference between these traditional hearing formats and um, and hearings outside of Washington. Uh, increasingly, we have members who are um, not in Washington most of the week. Um, they're there maybe Tuesday to, to Thursday, and they're barely in the hearings that happen as a result of a busy schedule. Um, and so COVID-19 really encouraged digital hearing formats. I talked about field hearings that are outside of Washington. Um, so there's different ways to be held in hearings that both um, might make it more accessible for members and respond to what is the contemporary kind of schedule that many members have. Um, And also, as I mentioned, allow for a different kind of engagement between members um, and a different kind of engagement with witnesses who might not be able to travel to Washington. Um, And and, and so it really opens up the process. And lastly, I would highlight that um, part of the the dysfunction um, is obviously still the, the partisanship that um, that colors every single part of the policymaking process today, um, and 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 that really is paralyzing to Congress. So committees, as I mentioned, have the the potential to encourage uh, bipartisanship under certain conditions, um, and committee leaders can lean into this and create more spaces like congressional delegation trips, but also more bipartisan working spaces for staff um, and bipartisan engagement of staff. Um, lately, there's been a lot of discussion of more bipartisan onboarding for members and staff that really encourage um, some of the bipartisanship that is that is still so lacking and um, and that is so debilitating. Facilitating the the lack of bipartisanship in the context of the contemporary Congress. So still a lot of of work to do, obviously, and um, those are just a few of the the reforms that I talk about in the book um, that can help 
um, strengthen the, the committee system in order to strengthen Congress as a whole. All right. Dr. Maya Kornberg, thank you so much for chatting with me and with our audience about your new book, Inside Congressional Committees, Function and Dysfunction in the Legislative Process. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kosar, and thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.